America has only 4.4% of world's population, only 4.4%, yet 31% of all opioid that deaths that we have around the world is from U.S. My guest today is Dr. Chris Johnson, uh, who is an expert speaker on the opioid crisis, public health advocate, author, emergency physician. And every week we talk about who we want to bring up to interview on what topic. This opioid topic came up, you know, oxycodone, and many of us have either had direct experience with it or an indirect experience with it, a loss of a loved one. It's very painful. But one of the statistics I saw, there's many different things we're going to get into, one of the statistics I saw him talk about was the fact that America has only 4.4% of world's population, only 4.4%, yet 31% of all opioid that deaths that we have around the world is from U.S. So we want to find out why is U.S. This is not a statistic we want to be leading in, and he's the expert in this area. So Dr. Chris Johnson, thank you so much for making the time for being a guest on Vitamin. Well, thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, th that talk you gave uh, on TEDx, TED Talks, was what you had. You, obviously, you have a charisma, you have charm, but the statistics I was looking at, I'm like, you got to be kidding me. Why are we not talking about this? So would you mind taking a moment and telling the audience your background? Obviously, I have it here. You garnered the first a physician award in 2017. You, you've spoken to FDA advisory committees. You've spoken to a bunch of different groups. But give us your history and what got you to be wanting to do more research on this specific topic? Well, uh, as you mentioned, my, my background is emergency medicine, and uh, I'm a practitioner uh, uh, here in the Twin Cities in, in Minnesota. And it, it might be a little bit unusual that some would find, like, why is an emergency medicine physician talking about this? Shouldn't we be talking to a pain physician or we, should we be talking to addiction physicians? And, and there certainly are experts in that, in that area too. But the, what got me motivated to learn more about this was my own clinical practice in the early to mid 2000s where uh, I was going to work every day and I found that I really couldn't get through a shift without seeing a patient who was either having some sort of um, pain exacerbation or complication from opioids, um, maybe someone overdosing, they needed me to give them either like Narcan, the antidote. Sometimes I'd have to intubate them, put them on a ventilator. But actually more often than not, it was someone on high dose opioids such as Oxycontin plus Percocet, another opioid is short acting for breakthrough. And they were coming in because they were having breakthrough pain. They were out of their opioids. And I was looking around, I was like, why is this happening? I don't remember this in my medical school training, I don't remember this when I was training as what's called a resident physician, which is an apprentice physician, but it's happening every shift now. And I tried to invest like, why is, is this, has it always been like this? Or is this something- Are you new? asking people at that time? Or are you like that? I'm asking about? myself. Okay, I mean, for it. the most, I'll be honest, like most people are like, they're just like, oh, I guess this is what's happening. This is how we're going to practice now. And you just manage Even in it. Your world, in. Pretty wild. And, and- you know who knew how that happened, but I I sort of took it the next step and I and I investigated, is this is this different or is it just I've just been unaware and only becoming aware of something that's been going on for years and years. Yep. 
And what I found was that it was in fact very different, that, that in 1995, the United States was not like this. Um, yes, you still had problems with opioid addiction. You still had even opioid overdose deaths, okay? But the country dramatically changed from 1995 to 2005. Um, the prescriptions for opioids massively increased. And with the massive increase in the prescriptions, you had all this, all these patients who now became dependent or had chronic opioid, uh, chronic pain on chronic opioids, and they were having problems with it. Um, and so my research at that time was mostly to investigate, is this real? Is what I am seeing real? Um, and how did it happen? And so that became my motivation, um, mostly to see like what I was, what I was seeing every day was not was not corresponding to what I was taught as a, as a physician in training, that is these medicines were effective, they were safe, and they had very low abuse potential. Um, and that, that wasn't what I was seeing every day. Yeah, I, what I did is when you started talking, I said, okay, these stats, they, they, they don't make any sense to be the staggering. So I went to drugabuse.gov, drugabuse.gov, and this is the stat that came up. This is as recent as 2019, national drug overdose deaths involving any opioids, number of among all ages, gender, 99 to 2019. Great. So in 1999, it's less than 10,000. Okay. Then we go to 21,000 in 2010, but then the dramatic upswing to 49,860. And by the way, this is pre-COVID. So we can't say, well, during COVID, people are sitting around there and there are a lot of different pain. This this sudden, exp I mean, this is not a small trend here. It, 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 some people would say this is even at a faster growth than the S&P 500. Not some people would say it's accurate. So what caused this level of growth in Americans taking opioids? Well, actually, and that, and that graph is out of date. If it included the year 2020, that number from 50,000 or just about 50,000 overdose deaths from opioids would be 70,000. Holy moly. So while COVID happened, all right, the opioid epidemic got much worse, okay? And so even that graph, as, as dramatic as it is, is out of date, and it's even worse now. Um, and if it, if it went back farther from 1999, if it went back to like 1992, there were only about 6,000 deaths per year. And about 4,000 were from prescription, another 2,000 from heroin. And that had been stable going back into the 80s and even the 70s. And then starting in the late 1990s, early 2000s, you saw it go up and up and up. And that corresponds to when the treatment for chronic pain changed and we started prescribing opioids for back pain, for headaches, for arthritis. Um, and we exposed this, this massive new group in the patient population to opioids and caused a great many to become dependent or addicted at that time. Uh, and then as we started to realize in the 2010s, around 2010, 2015, that prescriptions were the root cause of this uh, increase in dependence and addiction and death, we started to level off the prescribing, but it was too late by then. You had, you had already created this population of people who now needed this, and as their dependence got worse, as their addiction got worse, they, then they turned to things like heroin. So that's starting around the 2015, yep. you see the heroin go up. Yep. And then starting in the like 2017, then you have the fentanyl come in. And, and when you have this 
population that's dependent, and now they are getting, uh, you know, fentanyl from China and other places that have learned to manufacture this stuff, and they ship it, and then people who are uh, who are selling uh, on the on the uh, not the medical market, but the extra legal market to these patients who have become dependent from what we did. That's where you have this explosion in overdose deaths because when they go outside the regular medical marketplace, you don't know what's in it. And that's when you get people might find, they might think they're buying oxycodone pills, but they're actually oxycodone pills and there's fentanyl in there. Um, but they didn't, that's, that's the danger. So that's why you have that dramatic increase, even in the last five to eight years of deaths is because that's where it's coming from. It's coming from the heroin and the illicit fentanyl. Yeah. So how come, how come we're not, I mean, look, I saw the J and J uh, lawsuit that took place, I think started in 2019, uh, 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 2020, October 13th, and then July 21st, uh, drug distributors and J&J reached $26 billion deal to end opioids lawsuits. It, it, do, are you seeing a major progress being made by both doctors? Because you you give credit to four reasons why this is taking place, right? It wasn't just let's blame the pharmaceutical companies. It was four different things that you talked about. Are you seeing this being an issue that the folks at the top from the politics or whoever holds them accountable is bringing this up more or are they kind of looking the other way from your experience? My experience is that um, these settlements that you're talking about, and if you look closely at the settlements, you'll see that how many years that they're paid out over. And it's oftentimes seven years, sometimes 10 years that they are making these, you know, these restitution payments. Okay. But understand that they've made billions and billions on their on their drugs, and they will continue to sell and make billions while they're making these payments. So it's really just a yes, the number sounds big, and you might say, well, it's better than nothing, but it's a good business model. I mean, no executives went to jail, and none are going to jail. You know, and the Sacklers, the ones who own Purdue Pharma, they just got a bankruptcy settlement in earlier this month. They are, they are immune to civil litigation for in perpetuity now. They're, they're, and they get to keep over, there are many billions they've made, they get to keep all that. And they never admitted wrongdoing. So fines seems to be what pharmaceutical companies do and is seen as the cost of doing business. And it's a good business decision if you're a pharmaceutical company or if you're a board or, or a shareholder. Like, yes, you market these drugs, they're not really approved for what you say they're using, but we're making a lot of money. Eventually, someone will impose a fee, but it'll be far less than 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 what we've made. So that's that's a that's a good business decision. And what I want to point out to you and some of your viewers is that this is not the first time that has happened. Other drugs have had similarly been marketed off label, uh, and I'm referring to a drug called Neurontin here. It's just a very famous case. Uh, Neurontin was marketed uh, by Pfizer as a uh, a drug for seizure disorder if you if the other medicines weren't controlling it. But then it got off-label marketed for everything from headaches to ADHD. Um, and because of that, it got so overprescribed and made billions. Um, and they had to pay fines subsequently as well, uh, several hundred million dollars. But if you're paying $700 million on a drug, you made billions uh, per year. That is a good business model. You pay the fine, no executives go to jail, the shareholders are happy. The only people that get harmed are the patients. So, uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm looking at this. Well, you said at the arrangement, you're right, under this agreement, the country's three distributors would make payments of $21 billion over 18 years. Johnson and Johnson would pay $5 billion over nine years. So, it's, it's chump change. 
uh, to these guys. And but can you go back to the in perpetuity, in, in per, uh, perpetuity, which means there is no lack of accountability? Can you unpack what that means uh, when they say it's in perpetuity? So if something happens, if you can unpack that for the rest of us. What that means is that according to all right, and I I, I am not a I can't I can't claim to be a bankruptcy legal expert. OK, but according to the stories I have read about the bankruptcy filing in the state of New York for Purdue Pharma, the Sacklers have been absolved of wrongdoing and they may not be held accountable for any future civil litigation due to the harm of their product that they caused through exposing them ir even irresponsibly. Um, and remember that if Purdue Pharma had to pay had to pay hundreds of millions back in like 2007 for irresponsible marketing of their product even then. So this is there's nothing new about the irresponsible marketing they've and 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 they and they basically they got away with it. So but here's so my that's point. what it means is that how can they do that though? Who allows them to do that? Are these politicians who are helping them do that? Who allows these contracts to be written in a way where they're protected? It it has to do with the how the bankruptcy laws are written and they are written true by politicians but the, but remember that politicians are writing these laws that are often made put together by the lobbyists that represent the corporate business interests so they make the laws very favorable yeah. to the business interests sure sure and, and so and that then then you then you can now you've got the law in the books and you're like hey we'd like to do something but this you know we can't because here's how it's written now and I'm like eh. Just, but, just out of curiosity, wasn't the vaccine also written the same way as well in perpetuity that if something were to happen, there can't be a level of accountability to J&J &J and Pfizer? About what? The vaccine. Oh, I'll be honest. I, I, I don't know. I can't say. I don't I, know how that was. I saw that where there's a similar uh, uh, accountability where, you know, if something were to happen, say something, there's a reaction, they can't be held accountable either. It, it protects them. But I want to go to this one site that gives stats on what else is going on with opioids. Um, here's uh, mass.gov. Uh, four out of five people who use heroin began by misusing prescription pain medications, uh, similar ones you're talking about, Oxycontin, Vic Vicodin, fully com commonly prescribed pain medications. One in 14 reports they've misused or abused a prescription drug at least once. I was asking my peers here right now before we setting up the camera, I said, how many of you guys have lost a friend to opioids, everybody raised their hand. One of them was a teenager because she just got her hands on it. I said, was it from the doctor or somebody else? No, it was just a teenager. One of her friends gave it to her. She thought it was something else. She took it, boom. Uh, she lost her life. Two out, two out of three teens abusing prescription meds say they get them from family or friends. So I'll give you one story of a friend of mine, and this is very close to me. Best friend of mine when I was uh, in LA going to Glendale High School, he uh, uh, you know, started taking Vicodin. And he was getting this Vicodin from a dentist that was selling it to him. And it was selling it for whatever the price was. He started off with one, you know, he's having pain. He's like, man, I'm really having this pain. It went to two to five. It got to a point where it was taking 10, 20 a day, Vicodins. Obviously, we ended up losing them uh, uh, years ago. And I took him to rehab and it wasn't a good situation. I remember one time we're at a, uh, a, a restaurant and he steps out right after we were done with Bible study on a Friday. And I'm trying to get this guy to kind of try to figure out a way to change. He goes to his car pulls into his car and I sneak up on him to see where he's at. Cause I knew when he would roll his, uh, when he would talk and I see he pulls in to take the Vicodin and I take it out of his hand. I take the pills. I've never heard anybody beg for anything in my life to give to them. Never. I've never heard anyone be this week to beg to say, please give it to me. I have so much pain. Can you unpack the level of 
how addictive these opioids are when somebody starts. So walk me through what the process is and where it goes next. So, hey, typically it's a doctor gives it to them. Walk me through the process. This is your world that you research. What does that really look like? Well, what I would, I would, I want to maybe back up just a, a little bit here. Okay. What it, what is certainly true is that um, three out of four people who, who, three to four, four to five, 75 to 80%, that's about roughly like who move on to heroin began uh, their use of opiates with a prescription. And, uh, and I would, I, I would also like maybe quantify or push back a little bit on misuse. Um, what happens with opioids is that these are pharma pharmaceutical, these molecules mimic the own opioids we make. Okay. We have receptors for these. Okay. But our brains are built for physiologic doses, small ones, and then we're getting pharmaceutical doses, big ones. Okay. And the brain naturally pushes back. The brain doesn't want to feel elation and euphoria all the time. It pushes back almost immediately and says, this is not normal. And what we know is that very quickly, when you start exposing yourself to opioids, is your brain starts to change and it stops responding to them. And it actually develops these processes called opponent processes where they don't work so well. And there was a very important study done in 2016 by the Kaiser Foundation and the Washington Post that shows people who are exposed to opioids report becoming dependent or addicted in as little as two months. That's how fast it works. So it's not so much that they are misusing them. What they're finding is that they are being told they work for pain and then very quickly find out, well, one isn't working for pain anymore. Now I need two for pain. Now I need five for pain. And so let's, it's, it can be better character. This is natural physiologic homeostasis. And what homeostasis means in medicine biology is that the body wants stability. So th- these medicines are, are not working like they were supposed to because the body is pushing back. And so that's what happens when a person, again, like your friends, gets, starts it out for tooth pain and, and one was fine. Now they need three. And it hijacks the brain's own opioid system. Your own reward system gets hijacked by these chemicals such that now you make almost no opioid yourself. Your endorphins, your natural opioids stop getting made. The brain is pushing back on their effect. And so now when you are without them, your brain says, I feel awful, do something. And so that might've led to that episode where your friend is begging because they were in in pure misery because the molecule that everyone sort of almost takes for granted, you've got a regular amount of it keeping you feeling normal. That that feeling of normal is gone. And that's how dangerous and how how destructive they can be that in as little as two months, you can change the brain enough to become dependent. Yeah, would you say the closest thing to, if if we were to make a reference, not closest thing to how addictive it is, but is it kind of like a, when a bodybuilder or somebody does steroids and their testosterone, they're no longer producing testosterone naturally, and they stay on it for one month, two months, three months, let's just say they cycle, they go six months, 12 months, and the body, when they get off of it, the skin gets yellow, the body doesn't know how to produce testosterone. Would that be a similar way to look at where your body forgot how to produce that testosterone? Yeah, I, th- I think that's actually that that's a, a very good sort of analogy. Um, you might say that sort of a, a bodybuilder, let's say a male bodybuilder in particular, um, you know, the sort of now I, I'm not a I like fitness. I do fitness, but I'm not a bodybuilder. Um, 
and, I, and I've never done testosterone, but since your testicles make testosterone, what bodybuilders find is that the more they get testosterone through a shot, you know, from, from their environment, the testicles shrink, okay? And that's just the body's natural response, okay? Why would I bother making all my own testosterone? I'm getting it from the environment. We're going to shut this down. And so, yes, that is the, exactly the same mechanism. The body realizes it's getting this compound. It doesn't need to make it, so it stops. Who is, who is the most powerful person that is bringing this up and wanting to do something about it? If you were to name a couple people, when I mean powerful, I mean somebody that can really move, uh, uh, you know, that can do something about it. Huh. President, uh, governors, senators. I mean, we, we've we've got you know we've had um, you know the governor of governor uh, uh, of Minnesota um, uh, put together this pain pill problem summit back in 2015. The state of Minnesota uh, is actually involved in a in a very important effort to bring uh, physician prescribing under control. I, I work for the Department of Human Services Opioid Prescribing Work Group, and we're actually now reviewing prescriptions by doctors all over the state and giving them feedback for the first time ever. I, I mean, even I'm getting feedback. Like I never knew how much I was prescribing relative to my other emergency medicine doctors. Now I get a report card every year that shows how many am I prescribing? What are my peers prescribing? Um, so that's a very powerful effort that is being led by the state of Minnesota. I don't know if it's being done in other states. Um, you know, I, I, I can't say that I know anyone who's really bringing the medical industry to heal it's sort of it, you know or or to to con to control it it's sort of being left on its own to try and regulate itself and and self regulation I, I doesn't have a great track record uh in this country whether it's medicine or banking um you know part of, part of the problem part of the problem is that if you'll look up at the top 5 lobbying contributors in this in this country it's the American Medical Association the American Hospital Association and pharma are in the top five each and every year. I've seen that. And as a consequence, some of the changes that we might want to see to make medicine more, more uh, responsible, such as um, let's interrupt the financial relationships between pharmaceutical companies and doctors. Let's stop having, you know, uh, just regular fee-for-service payment that just encourages chronic consumption of healthcare. These things that might... Um, reduce the the sort of business incentive just to keep the process going in medicine. None of that is really happening as far as I can tell. Um, not that senators aren't worried about it. We have multiple senators and Congress people who know friends that know family have had problems. But in terms of changing the overall marketplace, I can't say that yeah. I've seen anything. Why, why do you think? I mean, look, I'm looking at right now, Johnson & Johnson, they've said they uh, suspended supporting any political donations in 2021. But if I go and look at their 2019 and 2020. 2019, they gave lobbyists uh, uh, $5.83 million, and 2020 was $5.57 million. At the top is Biden, $370,000. Second is Trump, 106. So they gave four times more to Biden than Trump. Then it's DNC Services Corp, Democratic Sen Senatorial, Republican Senatorial. So it's not like it's, it's uh, four red, it is uh, six blue that they're giving money to, if we were to say which side politically they're supporting. Um, and this is public info. People can't find this kind of stuff. But look, you but, yeah, and I would say this, like if you look at the, I mean, remember that that top five list, you know, you, uh, you uh, including those, that goes back year after year. Whoever is in power 
I'm aware they, of this. I've they, this. They give to both sides. They have an incentive to make sure that whoever. Yeah. I wonder who they give to more because of why. I wonder if they give right more, if they give left more. I don't know if you've ever investigated this because uh, I think there has to be a reason why nobody in power is bringing this up. Why? I mean, look, we can sit there and uh, uh, when there is a presidential uh, uh, person that's running, say governor's running, they typically campaign around something. So we're going to camp Obama around Obamacare. Okay, fine. That's what he's campaigning around. Jimmy Carter, human rights. Fine. You got oil. You got immigration. You got wall. You got drugs. You got fight against drugs. You got, how come we're not, if, if we're talking 70,000, right? You're saying 70,000 in 2020. Statistics came out that out of the 660 something thousand people, this was public info, out of 661,000 people that died from COVID, 5% died with COVID being the leading indi indicator. So 5% of 660, you're talking about 33,000 people died as a leading cause being COVID. You're talking 70,000 died last year leading cause in opioids. How come no one's calling the alarm? How come I don't see it on CNN, Fox, MSNBC? Why is, is are they afraid of bringing it up? Or is everybody kind of like hush hush because they're giving us money for campaigns and commercials? Well, there, I mean, I mean, some have been doing uh, documentaries on this. I think there was the forgotten epidemic. I forget if it was CNN or MSNBC, but understand that when you have privately fund campaigns that are routinely in the millions, tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions, um, these are largely privately funded. They I mean, whether you're right or whether you're left, you are often getting corporate donations or corporate interest group donations. And when you when, when you take someone's money, it's very difficult to tell them no or to act contrary to their interest. And these major donors give to both sides so that whoever ends up in power, they don't mess they don't mess with those the, the healthcare system, which right now is very lucrative. And as you probably know, um, the United States healthcare industry is over three trillion dollars a year um, by itself. That's the fifth largest economy in the in the world. Just the just healthcare, and what you also might know is that we live about the same um, number of years as they do in Greece, and they spend a third of that per person. So it's not like the the, the patient in the United States is actually getting a good return on, on on the cost. So we have a very expensive system that is not giving us life expectancy in return, and we have a political system that is often dependent on private donations. And so when they make their, whichever side gets the money, they don't mess with this system. And there are many calling for reform. I think it was it John McCain who called for campaign finance reform as well. Um, sort of getting the money out of campaigns would then make candidates more responsive to the needs of a population as opposed to the needs of you know corporate imperatives. Yeah. So so. How much deeper are you going with this? I'm curious because uh, 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 are you uh, are you going surface level where it's like, look, here's what's going on. Let's have somebody else go and figure out a way to address this. Or are you somebody that's saying, here's what's going on, and you're making the phone call and you're setting up the meetings to present this to the decision makers, to the guys, can we do something about this? This is real. How deep are you going with this issue? I'm curious. Um, I'm going as deep as I possibly can. Um, I would I would say that um, in my role for the Minnesota Department of Human Services and 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 being part of that effort as far as our legislation to bring better prescribing, um, I am taking that to as high as I can on, on that level. Now, 
do I have the ear of you know leaders and decision makers here? I probably don't. Um, I make it a point to attend the conferences, and when I see people from the DEA come and speak, uh, uh, and I and I have meetings occasionally with people like uh, you know, Representative Angie Craig. Believe me, I believe me, I try. Um, but but I, I I can't say that I have the ear of the of those kind of decision makers, though I am open to any and all, anyone who will listen, I will speak to. Yeah, I mean, I just think if, so. Uh, it's fair to say these numbers are not fake, right? So I mean, if the government's giving us the stats, you're looking at seventy thousand people, and in 1999 it was ten thousand people. Okay, so if we go from ten to seventy thousand. And everybody has a story there. It's a, it's, a, it's a level drug below heroin. And we all know what happens when a person gets heroin. I, I had a person that told me it's tougher to get off of Vicodin than it is to get off of heroin. You know, it's always been heroin is what's tougher to get off of. Historically, it's always been heroin is tough to get off of instead of Vicodin. Uh, how hard is it for somebody once, once they're in too deep to get off of the addiction they have to the opioid? Um, it is very hard. Um, I guess I don't have the stats on how long it would take this opioid versus that opioid. Um, we do have treatment for opioid addiction, which uh, I talk about. Um, uh, I mean, I don't know if I could get into it much in my TED talk. I was only had I had like 18 minutes. Um, but the but medical assisted therapy that's the methadone, that's the buprenorphine. We know that those treatments are available for people who have opioid dependence, opioid addiction. Um, but understand that um, it doesn't get it doesn't make things whole again. They they don't get rid of the changed neural pathways. They reduce the cravings so that the people aren't miserable. But the but the physiologic and the neuro neurophysiologic changes of addiction persist. Um, the study that I quote often to people who are trying to get off those drugs is that methadone and buprenorphine redu reduce your risk by about a third to a half in the first year. Okay, that's significant, but it's not nothing. Your, your, the risk of an overdose is still very high. Um, and if you look at all-cause mortality, not just overdose deaths, but all-cause mortality, the risk of death, if you develop use disorder, even getting treatment is about one in five in 10 years. One in five in 10 years. Because people who have develop addiction also develop higher rates of cardiovascular disease. They get higher rates of cancer. They get higher rates of hepatitis. They, those also are, can be very dangerous. So addiction is not just overdose. All the dangerous life things that happen to you when you're in the midst of addiction happen to you at a higher rate too. Um, I wanna go back at least one thing to say about like getting the ear of decision makers. Um, what, I would, what I would also say to you, and I, I think I, I sent you the, 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 uh, the information is that even the American Medical Association is compromised by relationships with the pharmaceutical industry. At their board of trustees meeting in 2019, and I, I brought up their meeting minutes and I sent them along, the American Medical Association, the loudest voice of doctors, is partners with Mallinckrodt. They're partners with Teva. They're partners with Pharma. Um, so when I, you try to have, you know, you, you try to have a loud voice and reach our politicians and decision makers, understand there's nothing I'm going to do that's going to have a louder voice than the president of the AMA. But the AMA is compromised by relationships with Pharma which makes the independent voice of protest difficult to be heard. Do you trust the AMA? No. Do you trust CDC? 
Uh, I don't think the CDC is compromised by financial conflicts of interest the way the AMA is, but I, really? I don't, um, I, I can't say I've looked at their meeting minutes. Oh, I, mean, if you, I can pull it up right now who funds CDC and you'd be shocked by who funds uh, uh, CDC and World Health Organization. So so, so you, you don't trust them because you think they're compromised by big pharma. I, I would say that, you know, when you see that on, they have something called a corporate yeah. roundtable and Tiva is there, Malincrot's there, Pharma is there, all these pharmaceutical companies are there. Um, that is why you've never actually seen the AMA, the American Medical Association, come out with a statement, you know, say as early as 2010 saying, you know, in, in looking at the, at, the, at the record, we do not see that opioids are providing the benefit of long lasting pain control without risk. Um, we make a statement that no, no physician should start further patients on these medications uh, with the goal of being on them long-term. They've never said that, not in 2010, not in 2015, not in 2020. If you look at what the statements of medical organizations typically do is they, they, they trump access to treatment, right? They're, that means they would like to do their best to solve it, but in, in a way of solving it, that still allows them to sell more healthcare. Um, so you've never heard, had them call out, you know, the science on, on the pain medicine saying, look, this was not good science. We didn't, we shouldn't have been doing this. Um, and in that sense, I do not think they're, they're, uh, uh, their voice is uncompromised. They, they, they are protecting their financial relationships. Yeah, I just pulled up CDC Foundation. You're talking about Pfizer, uh, you know, all the main ones, Gates Foundation. I think even J&J, a lot of these guys are also backing those guys up. You know, what, what makes it difficult when someone like you comes up and you're sharing these things, uh, the, the tough part becomes, who do you trust? Do you sit there and trust these independent organizations that are supposed to do what's best for us, yet behind closed doors, they're being funded by these big corporations that can, like you said, if somebody gives you money, how hard is it to say no to it, right? It's not a lot of statesmen left around nowadays. It's just who funded me and let me be loyal to them because if I don't get reelected, how am I going to get this money to get reelected? I need their support to help me out. Who do people trust? Uh, and, and I, I don't even, I, maybe I said it in my TED talk too, but like the, the, there's lots of studies showing that it doesn't take much to change a doctor's prescribing. You know, about a $20 lunch is all it takes. Um, I think there was a journal, the American Medical Society study. Yeah, $20 is, for, for a lunch is all it takes. Um, and in 2019, the Journal of the Medical Association published a study. These guys looked county by county, yeah. where 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 there was more frequent gifts to doctors by pharmaceutical companies, there was increased opioid prescribing and increased opioid death. It's tough to read, okay? Because I've I've been able to practice medicine my entire career without without accepting any gifts. You know, in the um, securities industry, but I would, but you know, okay, I, I would I would say that it's it's. You, you want you there are good people in medicine there are ethical people in medicine but what i say and when i give my talks i try to remind it's very often what you have are good people in systems where they're they have bad incentives they have incentives not to do the right thing good point very good point so good people with bad incentives so the compensation structure is set up in a way where they're tempted to do the wrong thing and to be influenced by it. that's a scary thought you know, well, the financial well, well, this is we yeah. saw that in Wells Fargo. Like they no, I, I totally get it. I totally get it. I mean, yeah, of course, with the credit card, I, I totally get the whole. I don't know what the number was. It was a ludicrous amount. But, you know, one thing they did in the financial industry, again, I'm giving you this stuff that maybe, you know, you you if you're in this world, you can bring it up to others. 
if I'm securities licensed, you know what my limit is for gifts? I can't give you, I can't get you a gift more than $100 per year. So I'm limited, right? What if they put a gift limited to doctors? What if you can't give them gifts? What if it can't come with that? Now, I know the sales part is kind of taken out, but you are dealing with someone's health and life. So should there be an incentive to get the, I don't know. I think it's a different story when I'm dealing with investments versus someone's health. I don't know if I'm comfortable for the doctor to get a gift by a pharmaceutical salesman. It's kind of weird. I don't know. All right. Well, there, I mean, there are limits to gifts, but but understand that there's it's, it's a very sneaky history about what then compromise constitutes a gift. Okay. Yeah. And you can start yeah. to have, you can bend the rules. Okay. So say you're not giving this doctor a gift, you're paying them to teach and all of a sudden, these paid speaking gigs yep. constitute teaching. They're not gifts, but for they're for a couple thousand dollars. Yep. And you might remember the case of uh, Insys Pharmaceuticals, that is I-N-S-Y-S. And they were found to have a sham teaching uh, or, or speaking program where the people on the, on the speaking program were high prescribers. And they got paid to give these quote unquote talks, often with only their office staff. And they would get paid. So while there are gifts and uh, there there is the Physician Payment Sunshine Act where you can go look it up and there's limits, you can sort of get around this and say like, okay, we're, we're this is technically teaching or this is some other service that is not a gift but is you know we compensate for that. Yeah. Uh, you know, you have you have you know this is also true in the device industry where you'll have orthopedic surgeons on the boards of of device companies with a new artificial hip and then that surgeon puts in that particular hip um so you you have it when when there is you can have these conflicts of interest in a number of ways that circum circumnavigates the definition of a gift but i yeah that's an ongoing issue yeah i mean if if this is what you study and this is what you talk about and there still isn't anybody in power that is willing to talk about this and bring it up I've never heard it. I've never heard anybody get up and uh, as a politician, a governor, a president, a candidate getting up. We have to fix the opioid crisis. Okay, how? What do we do? Uh, so what can we do at this point? You mentioned the four things, right? What can we do at this point to uh, uh, address this? Well, on an on a, uh, individual level or individual patient level, okay, yeah. I would want anyone who watches this talk, watches you, um, watches anyone, okay, understand that the data is is convincing. Okay, we've done. We now have. We should have done the study 25 years ago, and we didn't. But we've done it recently in 2018. We've done a blinded trial to see do opioids work after a year, and they don't. That is, that was the space trial, S P A C E. So for someone you know who's got back pain, joint pain, understand that they should not be taking opioids with the intention of ongoing treatment, and therefore they can protect themselves. Okay, I would also let them know that. Don't even take it for two months or even one month. Your risk of becoming dependent goes ex is extremely goes up to like one third. So if you're going to take these medicines, say for like you've got a, a, a you know a broken bone, kidney stone, absolutely you can take them then. But you, with the goal of being off of them quickly, you take it for like a week, maybe two if it's bad. Okay, but the goal is to get off of them. What we also need to do in the immediate term here is. Um, is find a you know compassionate treatment for those who probably you know, through, through no fault of their own started these medications. We're told they weren't nearly as dangerous as we thought and became dependent, and now are addicted. 
and and now they are using. We need to find ways to get them the treatment they need, not you know, not because it's going to cure them, but we, we're trying to minimize the risk of damage and give them as long and happy life as possible. And that's through things like addiction services, addiction treatment, medical assisted therapy. Um, those are the things we can do on an individual level, and we can do as as a as on a medical level. I still want to reform a political system that caters to the business interests of medicine. Um, I was hoping for like congressional, I was, I was ready to go. I'll go to Congress and talk to them like they did for the mortgage-backed securities crisis. About why, haven't this why, why haven't you yet? They haven't had, the, they have not had those hearings on the opioid crisis. I would absolutely have gone. Um, what, what's the process for you to recommend it? What's the process for you to get enough signatures? What's the process for you to get uh, enough people to say, because listen, 70,000 people died in 2020 based on the stat, right? That's 70,000 people's brother, sister, cousin, daughter, son, mom, dad, best friend. In one year. In one year we're talking about, right? And no one's even talking about it. If that's a stat, how many signatures do you need to get on the congressional to be able to talk about this stuff? Because when I watch your TED Talks, you know what's the first thing I ask myself? Here's the first thing I ask myself. I said, this thing's got 45,000 views. What? Yeah, it's nothing. It's, it's, it's a two-year-old video. How the hell does this thing only have 40, 45,000 views? It's not going to make an impact. So what do you need to do to get in front of congressional to get enough people's attentions to say, hey, we kind of want to see what the Congress wants to do about this? Um, I have had relationships with 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 a Congress uh, with con Congress members. Uh, uh, you know, Klobuchar. I've spoken with her. I've spoken with Angie Craig and, and given talks about this. Um, I I don't I don't have I can't say I have the voice to sort of just call their office and say let's have a meeting. I I don't I don't have that kind of. Have you tried that? I have. How many people? Um, my local representatives. I think you got to go more than that. I think you got to play a little bit of offense. Maybe go buy a sales book and uh, make the phone call, send the emails, because I think this is that important of a thing that if you've done research on it, you have way more credibility than a guy like me to go and talk about this. I just have pain in my heart because the person I lost, I love dearly. Like I love that. I miss that person. I lost that person because of this bullshit and it should never happen. So uh, I, I don't have your kind of influence uh, uh, in regards. I don't have the doctor in front of my name. This is your world that you're studying. I think I would encourage you. I'm a nobody to encourage you to do this. You're living in your own world. You have your own family, things that you're doing. I would encourage you to uh, play a little bit more offense to bring this up. By the way, have you reached out to both sides of the aisle? It sounds like it's only Democrats you're reaching out to. Oh, but those are the ones in Minnesota that are local. Okay. who Maybe reach out to the other side. Maybe somebody on the other side. Maybe reach out to if McCain was talking about this. Maybe reach out to his daughter. Maybe reach out to... I think if you play the laws of numbers and say, can you watch this? Please call me. I have some stats I want to share with you. I think someone's going to say yes. I'm just saying um, if this I, is. A listen, I, I, I am not, I am not, I don't have business training. I don't have media relations training. I don't, all, all I know is my, we're like, this is what I'm seeing. Here's why it's happening. Love and I've it. got data to back it up. I think that gives I me don't, I don't have, I can't say that I have the, I haven't been trained on the skill set to, to get that message out there more effectively. And I, I am open to any and all in terms of how does one how does one go about promotion of that and get yeah. an audience? That's absolutely what I'd be interested in. Yeah. You got a great story. You got you got something you're talking about that 
uh, if 70 million died just last year, 70,000. 70, I'm sorry, my apologies. 70,000 died last year, 50,000 a year before. Let's say it's 400,000 people in the last eight years. Okay, let's just put that number, give or take, right? 400,000, the individual that dies, how many people do they have that love them? That's dear friends or family to them. Let's just say eight per 400,000. That's 3.2 million people. You got millions of people that are interested in this kind of being heard by the people at the top. And if I ask you a question, I say, who's the most powerful person that's talking about this? You couldn't even come up with one name. 10 seconds, you were stuttering because you couldn't think of somebody. I think there's millions of people that would like to see this be more of an important uh, subject to be talked about. Maybe team up with somebody that's a good marketer, good on social media, good on the emails, good on contact and good in sales and see if it, that person can help you get in front of those guys. But I think you're, I mean, we're doing our part. This is our platform. Your message is going to be out there and God knows how many people are going to reach out to you because they're going to say, I heard the message. I'd love to help. But on top of that, I think there'd be other people that you can play offense with to get in front of the right people. Well, I'm all, I'm all for, uh, in, in, Increasing the urgency behind this, uh, obviously, well, I mean, COVID has, you know, I mean, almost 700,000, okay, in the last year and a half. So, I mean, it, it has basically, you know, it, it has taken the public health spotlight, obviously, but this other problem has not gone away. But that's why I, I can't say, do I know what drugs are, who's working on this right now, because all the public health resources right now have been dedicated to COVID. I mean, understandably so, but there's this other urgent need that hasn't gone away, and I'm absolutely uh, prepared to do all the work that I need to do. I'm ready to do it. Yeah. I mean, listen, the, the, the world can handle, America can handle multiple different crises at the same time. We're and you, met, and you mentioned like three points. I, I, I think if you went into a, a lecture hall and, I'm, and you, yeah. you asked them to raise their hand, who do you know, a close friend or a family member? Of Half. Of course. Half. I believe you. I believe you. That's why I think, that's why I think this has, this needs to get to the next level. Anyways, by the way, if somebody wants to get a hold of you, how can they find you? Um, I don't know if you can put up on your... Uh, I'm going to uh, put it below. Don't worry about it. So here's what we'll do. If, if it's a website, you can tell us, but we're also going to put it in the description. Go right ahead. Endtheopioidcrisis.com okay. um, is my website. Um, that is E-N-D-T-H-E-opioidcrisis.com. Okay. Uh, I don't know if you put a Gmail email on there. Or is that sort of there's rules about that? Are they going to be able to find you, contact you through your website if they want to send a con email you or no? They can contact me through the website. Um, uh, you, you can find me on LinkedIn as well, uh, Dr. Chris. What, what's your email? I will, I will send you all of that. Give us all that information. We're going to put all of it below because if anybody is watching this and you were directly affected by this and you can have an impact where he can get in front of Congress and give this message and other people can participate. I'll go to other states. I'll talk out. to their legislators. Absolutely. Please reach out to Dr. Chris Johnson. Uh, Dr. Chris Johnson, thank you for making the time and being willing to take the questions I just threw your way and addressing them to the best of your abilities. I think you have a message that needs to be heard. And I think a lot of people are hoping this thing gets heard by the right people. Thank you well, for making the time for being a guest on Vitamin. I appreciate that. Thank you so much for inviting me. Uh, I hope people are uh, moved, moved by it. I think they will be. Just out of curiosity, do you have anybody close to your friend or family that also got addicted to opioids that you lost? because they couldn't stop using them. Comment below, I'm actually curious to hear your stories and also thoughts on what he had to say. And if you know, if you know somebody on a way to get him in front of those guys, let's figure out a way, contact him, all his information is below. But if you enjoyed this interview, I did an interview also with Dr. Jason Fong, where he had different angle. He's a, a, he has a treatment for obesity, cancer, diabetes, very interesting guy that I spoke to. 
He's another guy that's got millions of views. If you've never watched this, you'll get a different angle from what he has to say. I think you'll enjoy that interview as well. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.